thank you that we can worship you, the one true almighty God. As we turn to your word now, would you guide us? Lord, direct our thoughts into the paths that you choose. Father, with the psalmist, we ask that you would help us understand your teachings so that we can meditate on your marvelous deeds. Lord, we ask that you would strengthen us through your word. Encourage us as you have promised to do. Father, teach us your ways and show us your will. And we, we pray all this to your honor and your glory. Amen. Right out of college, I started working as a petroleum engineer in northwestern New Mexico. Now, my job was drilling oil and gas wells. I'd been on the job for about 10 months when my boss called me into his office. He said, remember that, um, that well up in the Hickoria that you finished last week? I said, sure. He said, well, did you know that you completed it in the wrong geological formation? Um, I felt sick. I realized that I had just made literally a $1 million mistake. I was sure he was gonna fire me on the spot. When he said, you know, I've been waiting for this to happen, I was sure I was gone. But then he said, with a little smile, relax, it's okay. All the new engineers have made a mistake. You're just the last one to join the club. We all make mistakes. The point is, learn from it don't make the same mistake again. We've all failed at some point, at something or other, haven't we? It's something that we all have in common. So it's a good thing that God makes a habit of using people who have failed. Otherwise, there wouldn't be anyone for him to call on. Now, one of the things I love about the Bible, it doesn't try and hide failure. It doesn't try and hide flaws or sin you know Noah got drunk and exposed himself at least twice Abraham passed his wife off as his sister um, his son Isaac did the same thing and his son Jacob well he lied to his father and and outright stole his brother's birthright and we're still in Genesis the first book you know, David sinned with Bathsheba and then had her husband killed. Um, what about the way the disciples abandoned Jesus? Peter denied him three times. Mark bailed out on the first missionary journey. And today, in our text, we, we see Moses. He kills an Egyptian. He's rejected by his countrymen. He flees for his life and lives in the desert for the next 40 years. But this story, this story gives us hope that God can and will use us in spite of our failures, in spite of our flaws, in spite of our sin. And sometimes he'll even use us through them. So let's turn, if you haven't already, to Exodus chapter 2, and we'll start reading in verse 11. Now it came about in those days when Moses had grown up that he went out to his fellow Hebrews and looked at their hard labors 
and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his fellow Hebrews. So he looked this way and that, and when he saw that there was no one around, he struck and killed the Egyptian and hid his body in the sand. Now he went out the next day, and behold, two Hebrews were fighting with each other. And he said to the offender, why are you striking your companion? But he said, who made you ruler and a judge over us? Do you intend to kill me as you killed the, the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid, and he said, Surely the matter has become known. When Pharaoh heard about this matter, he tried to kill Moses. But Moses fled from the presence of Pharaoh and settled in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Let's pause there. I can see the headline in the Egyptian Gazette, Flawed failure Moses flees from Pharaoh. But we don't really remember Moses for his failures, do we? In Islam, Moses is an extremely important prophet. In Judaism, he's the most important prophet. Moses is a hero to Muslims and to Jews and to anyone who's seen Cecil B. DeMille's epic, The Ten Commandments. But who is this Moses that we find here in chapter 2? Well, at this point, he's some 40 years of age, and he's a man on the verge of greatness. Josephus, the Jewish historian, tells us that Moses was being groomed to become the next pharaoh, the next king of Egypt. He also reports that Moses has been a successful military commander leading the Egyptian army against the Ethiopians. Now this extra biblical source kind of supports what Stephen has said of Moses in Acts chapter 7. We looked at that last week. Remember Stephen was speaking to the Sanhedrin and he said, and Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and he was mighty in his words and deeds. Another scripture gives us some insight into who this Moses is. And we find that in Hebrews chapter 11. Now it came, uh, by faith Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt for he was looking for the reward. Moses knew where he came from. He knew his Hebrew heritage. And we get the sense that he was a good-hearted, compassionate man who had great sympathy for his brothers, so much so that he chose to be associated with them rather than with his adopted people. We have to admire his selflessness, his willingness to identify with his Hebrew brothers, which came at no small cost to himself. He, he tried to do what he could to relieve his brother's suffering. Stephen goes on to explain in Acts 7 that Moses believed it was his destiny to free the people. In verse 25 of Acts 7, he supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. 
So we find Moses, an accomplished man with a good heart and good motives. In fact, with his knowledge of Egyptian culture, how the system worked, with his Hebrew heritage, he was uniquely qualified and perfectly positioned to deliver the Hebrews from their bondage. And then things fall apart. The wheels come off. Moses goes out, he sees an act of injustice, an Egyptian taskmaster beating a Hebrew slave, and Moses rises up and kills the Egyptian. Now, commentaries have debated this for a long time. Some argue that Moses was guilty of murder. And some say, well, no, it was involuntary manslaughter or maybe justifiable homicide. If Moses had been brought to trial, you know, his, his defense might have sounded something like this. Well, this was not a premeditated attack. Um, this was an act of passion. And besides, an Egyptian prince can't be held accountable for, for killing a low-life slave driver, can he? Or they could argue that Moses was acting appropriately on the basis of lex talionis, the, the law of retaliation. You know, an eye for an eye, a life for a life. And the text itself kind of opens that door for us um, because the same Hebrew word is used for the beating um, the Egyptian was giving the Hebrew slave and for what Moses did to the Egyptian. It's the same word. Maybe, maybe the Egyptian was beating the slave with the intent of killing him. Well, then Moses was only doing what he had to do to preserve a life. Maybe Moses didn't intend to kill the Egyptian at all. Another line of defense could have been justifiable homicide. And that seems to be the conclusion that Stephen points us to when he's, again, speaking before the Sanhedrin in Acts 7, where we read in verse 23, when he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. Defending the oppressed, avenging the wronged, that sounds noble. That sounds righteous. But whatever we call it, the Egyptian died at Moses' hand. Whatever we call it, what he did was wrong. It was wrong because it was unnecessary. Moses could have protected the slave without losing his temper and without killing the Egyptian. It was wrong because it wasn't Moses' place. He had no authority or official capacity to try and administer justice in this, in this area. And it was wrong because Moses had not called, or sorry, God had not called Moses to free the people yet. It was wrong because it wasn't God's way. And moreover, Moses knew it was wrong. He looked around to make sure there were no witnesses. And then he tried to cover up the evidence. Perhaps the surest proof that it was wrong 
was the subsequent 40 years that he spent in exile in the wilderness. Now, there are some situations where killing is not murder. The Westminster Catechism explains that the sixth commandment, you shall not murder, applies to taking our own life or the life of another, except in the cases of public justice, lawful war, or necessary defense. Yet even in these narrowly defined situations, we are not to take the law into our own hands. Anyone who has been angered by injustice can sympathize with how Moses must have felt and maybe even sympathize with what he did. But that doesn't make it right. Murder is simply anger taken to the logical conclusion. And this incident stands as a warning for all of us against anger. It might remind you of what Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew 5, verse 21, we read, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. As followers of Christ, we are called to live in gentleness and peace. Well, the next day, thinking everything's cool, his secret's safe, Moses goes out again to be among his Hebrew brothers. And again, he sees an injustice. This time, it's between two Hebrews. So with good intentions, Moses intervenes again seeking to reconcile the two men. Good news, he didn't kill anyone this time. But the offender rejects Moses' justice, his intervention, and calls into question his authority. And on top of all that, this Hebrew man points out that he knows Moses killed the Egyptian. Okay, side note. This won't be the last time that Moses is rejected by the people, or his authority is questioned. In fact, there are some strong parallels between how the people treat Moses and how centuries later they treat the greatest deliverer, Jesus Christ. And before we get too critical of Israel, let's remember that basically we're just like them. But back to our story. Okay, the secret is out. How could things have gone so wrong? Why didn't God protect Moses in this situation? Well, from our human perspective, this is a tragedy. This, this man with such good character, with, with his upbringing, with all of his training and education, with all of the accomplishments that he's made, Surely this was the man that God was going to use to deliver his people. But as perfectly suited as he was, Moses blew it. Killing the Egyptian was foolish and impractical. His attempt to make peace between the two Hebrews only antagonized them. These guys had seen too many people come to them with whips and swords in hand. 
They weren't going to trust an armed liberator. They weren't going to trust someone who was willing to kill. One reason Moses failed in his attempt to deliver the people was that he acted in his own strength. Even though his strength was considerable, even though his motives were good and right, even though he sincerely believed that this was his destiny, all of that was not enough. When Moses fought the Egyptian, it was one-on-one, mano-a-mano. And that's about all that Moses was prepared to do. That's what he could handle at this point. Moses needed to learn that deliverance is God's work. Once he learned to act in the Lord's strength, then God, through Moses, could and would take on all of Egypt. Our own strength will never be enough. On our own, we will always fail. Now, another reason Moses failed was that the timing wasn't right. Moses acted prematurely. He wasn't ready. He still had a lot to learn. And you know what? The people weren't ready yet either. And we can even surmise that God, in his mercy, wasn't ready yet to punish the Egyptians. He wasn't ready yet to displace the Canaanites. Moses got it wrong. He failed. Okay, time to start over. Let's find someone else. That's how we would react, right? But if we try and see it from God's perspective, through a more spiritual lens, we just might see that through his providence and by his grace, Yahweh has brought into being exactly the man that he required. Flaws, failures, warts and all. Yahweh just isn't through molding and shaping this man yet. Moses still needed training. There was a lot for him to learn, but that was not going to be possible in Egypt for now because Pharaoh was seeking to kill him. Why is, Moses, why is Pharaoh seeking to kill Moses? For killing an Egyptian? No, don't think so. You see, in acting to defend the Hebrew, this slave, Moses challenged the basic social and political and religious foundations of Egypt. He forsook his Egyptian heritage. He renounced his position as prince of Egypt. And he embraced his Hebrew brothers, these slaves, instead. And that's why Pharaoh wants him dead. Not only does Pharaoh want him dead, but his Hebrew brothers, they want nothing to do with him. Moses' leadership is utterly rejected, his authority questioned, and they let it be known that his secret is out. And so Moses fled to Midian and sat down by a well. So what do we take away from this first section? Well, first, just like we saw last week, salvation is God's sovereign work. Moses tried to save the people by his own work rather than letting God save them through his grace. 
It was an epic failure that ended with Moses on the run in fear for his life, rejected by the people that he wished to save. And the same principle, the same principle holds true for us. We can't achieve salvation for ourselves. We can't achieve salvation for others. Not by our own efforts. That only results in failure. It's God's work, the work of God's grace. A second takeaway, we all fail. We all fall short. But that doesn't stop God from using us and working through us. You know, whatever God calls us to do, we can be sure that his gracious preparation has made us exactly right for the task that he calls us to do, regardless of what we may think. The key is the call. It's what he calls us to do. All right, let's look at our text again, and let's pick up in verse 16. Now, the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came to draw water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. Then the shepherds came and drove them away. But Moses stood up and helped them. And, um, nah. and Moses stood up and helped them and watered the flock. Uh, when they came to their father, Ruel, he said, why have you come back so soon today? And they said, an Egyptian saved us from the shepherds. And what is more, he even drew water for us and watered the flock. So he said to his daughters, where is he then? Why is it that you have left the man behind? Invite him to have something to eat. And Moses was willing to live with the man, and he gave his daughter Zipporah to Moses. Then she gave birth to a son, and he named him Gershom, for he said, I have been a stranger in a foreign land. Okay, Midian. Midianites, who are they? Well, they're folks that, they're nomadic shepherds, and their land didn't really have strict boundaries. But it was basically on either side of the Gulf of Aqaba. Uh, the Gulf of Aqaba separates the Sinai Peninsula from the Arabian Peninsula. And it's, it's an arm of the Red Sea. Now, both sides... Both sides of the Gulf of Aqaba are desolate. They're barren wilderness. And that's a stark contrast to where Moses came from, the fertile Nile area. And we can also note that the Midianites were basically cousins of some kind to the Hebrews. The Midianites came from Abraham through his second wife, Keturah. Well, so immediately we find Moses in another confrontation with gross injustice. But it seems like there's some improvement in his uh, conflict negotiation skills. Moses comes to the aid of the daughters of Ruel and drives away the shepherds who are giving them trouble, but he only uses the force necessary to send them on their way. He doesn't overreact. Mm. 
maybe he's starting to act like a deliverer. And even then, he served these girls. He watered their flock. Think about that. An Egyptian prince is drawing water for some girls' sheep. No. In fact, that's, that's not even something that most men would do for a girl in that day and age. That was an act far, far beneath an Egyptian prince. Moses was learning how to serve. And we know from Acts that Moses spent 40 years in Midian. It was 40 years before God appears to Moses at the burning bush. I think it was D.L. Moody that said, Moses spent 40 years in Egypt learning to be something. He spent 40 years in the wilderness learning to be nothing. And then he spent 40 years in the desert proving that God is everything. Now, in case you missed the math there, that's two years of preparation for every one year of ministry. So if you get impatient with God's timing in your life, think about Moses. Maybe try and be patient. God, you see, isn't in any great hurry when he's preparing us for doing his will. So God used this 40 years in Midian to prepare Moses to lead the people out of Egypt. And he did this in several different ways. One way was just living in the wilderness. Moses had to learn the wilderness itself, the, the topography, the geography, where to find food, where to find water. All that experience would be a help while leading the people as they wandered in the wilderness. You see, Moses was going to have to teach them these survival skills because they're, again, coming from the fertile area of the Nile. They don't know the wilderness. So there were certainly practical aspects um, to this wilderness experience, and those were important. But even more important were the spiritual experiences. The wilderness is a place to meet God because to live in the wilderness is to be alone a lot. Moses wouldn't be the last one to meet God in the wilderness. Scripture tells us of Elijah, who heard that still, small voice while he was hiding in the wilderness. It was in the wilderness that John the Baptist preached and proclaimed his message of repentance and the nearness of the kingdom. In the wilderness, Jesus was tempted and triumphed over Satan. And it was in the wilderness that Paul searched the scriptures for the Christ of the Old Testament. In the wilderness, Moses learned what it was like to be an outcast, alienated from what he had known previously. Before Moses could lead the Israelites out of Egypt, he had to have his own exodus out of Egypt. You could say that this physical exile precipitated his emotional exodus out of Egypt. The Hebrews were strangers in Egypt. But Egypt was Moses' home. The daughters of Ruel immediately identified him as what? 
as an Egyptian. While living in the wilderness, Moses experienced alienation firsthand. Through his wilderness experience, he learned to identify more fully with his people and with their suffering. Now, instead of just sympathizing with them, now he could empathize. So what have you learned in your wilderness? Well, another way Moses was prepared for leadership was through his family situation. Now, do you think it was a little funny that Moses ended up um, being taken in by a man with seven daughters? Two questions. Could that be a coincidence or was it providence? And do you think maybe God has a sense of humor? Moses arrives single, but he ends up married to one of these girls and working for his father-in-law. Moreover, he becomes content in this situation. Philip Ryken, in commenting on this section, says Moses' family situation was part of his preparation for ministry. As a husband, he learned how to love and serve his wife. And as a father, he learned how to care for and discipline his children. By settling into the life of the home, Moses learned how to be a servant leader. Now Moses named his firstborn son Gershom. And he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. That's in the past tense. So it seems very likely that he was referring to his former home in Egypt. It's, more, it's noteworthy that the Hebrew verb garash is the source for the name Gershom. Now, garash means to drive out or expel. Maybe another reference to Moses' flight from Egypt. And as long as we're talking about original Hebrew, um, the two words ger and sham, which kind of go gersham, gershom, um, they kind of combine like a pun, which means an alien there. The Bible, with all these tidbits, isn't it fun? Okay, Moses also learned through his work experiences. Now, there weren't a lot of jobs for former princes in the wilderness. Fortunately, Moses' father-in-law had flocks that needed to be tended, so Moses became a shepherd. Now, remember, though, that shepherds were like the lowest class in Egyptian society. Um, and it's interesting to note that Moses wasn't the only leader of Israel that got his start as a shepherd. David was a shepherd as well wasn't he? Well, but why would being a shepherd be good preparation for leading God's people? Well, what do we know about sheep? Um, they're not very bright. They need to be led to food and water. They're pretty defenseless. They have to be protected from predators. And if you leave them alone, they wander around aimlessly. Sum it up, sheep need a shepherd. 
well, what do we know about God's people? Um, well, we sure need divine guidance, don't we? Because we tend to, tend to wander away from the truth. And we need nourishment, especially spiritual nourishment. We need protection from the enemy, right? And sometimes we need protection from ourselves. And occasionally we need, even need protection from one another. That must be why we find so many comparisons of God's people to sheep in the Bible. Think about Psalm 100, verse 3. You all know this. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. So what better training ground could Moses have gone to than to be a shepherd in the wilderness? When the psalmist spoke of the exodus out of Egypt um, in Psalm 77, it's no wonder that he said, you led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. But perhaps the greatest experience Moses had in the wilderness was simply getting to know God. During this time, Moses certainly learned a lot about himself, and he certainly learned a lot about God. And those are good and really important things. But even more important is growing relationally. Head knowledge only takes you so far. In the wilderness, Moses came to know God experientially, relationally. And that relationship is going to deepen even further until Moses becomes a man whom God speaks with face to face. And that started in the wilderness. Is your relationship with God growing deeper? Are you experiencing him or just knowing about him? And yet, Moses in the wilderness Man, it must have seemed like all that providential early training had been for naught. It wasn't worth anything. His first class education, apparently that was all wasted. All his talent and energy are now devoted to keeping a few sheep alive in the desert. Moses, he'd been spared by God's divine providence. He'd been superbly educated to find pasture for sheep. He's become content, though, where he is. Gone are the ambitions that had motivated a prince of Egypt. Moses has come to the end of himself. He's accepted the obscurity of failure. The Egyptians, they've forgotten about him. His Hebrew brothers, they've forgotten about him. But God, God has surely not forgotten him. You see, God was at work in Moses' life preparing him for service. God had a plan for Moses. We, we may not be a Moses, you and I, but God has a plan for each of us. In Ephesians 2, in verse 10, Paul explains that we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. 
being his workmanship, that means God is preparing us, working in us, so that we might do those good works that he has made ready for us. Often God accomplishes this through ordinary experiences, things that happen in our daily lives. James Boyce wrote about this, and he said, God can teach us through the failure of our own plans that he is capable of working for us and in us in spite of us. Only after we fail do we become aware that it is God and not ourselves who is working. Like he did for Moses, God can use our times alone, our family situations, and our work experiences to prepare us for his good works. Often it's our failures in those areas that bring the greatest lessons. What are you learning? What might God be preparing you for? Let's go back to our text and pick up in verse 23. Now it came about in the course of those many days that the king of Egypt died and the sons of Israel groaned because of the bondage and they cried out and their cry for help because of their bondage ascended to God. So God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And God saw the sons of Israel, and God took notice of them. Forty more years of slavery, 40 more years of suffering have been endured by the Hebrews. The passing of time has brought no relief to the people. Time did not prove to be the great healer. The old Pharaoh has died. Perhaps they thought the new Pharaoh will lighten our burden. But regime change brought no relief either. Meet the new boss. He's the same as the old boss. And then their cry for help rose up to God. They prayed to Yahweh for help. For the first time in this chapter, the name of God is mentioned directly. We've seen his hand at work through his providence, but now his name appears five times in just a couple of verses. In rapid fire, we see God plus an action verb four times. Something is about to change. God heard, God remembers, God saw, God knew or took notice of. Now, because our minds are finite, and our understanding is limited, the, the Bible sometimes has to use human concepts and constructs to try and explain something about God, something that's really just beyond us. And sometimes this can cause confusion or maybe misunderstanding, and this could be one of, one of those times. When we read God heard, God remembers, God saw, God knew, um, we could think something like, oh, that prayer the Hebrews sent, that, that rang a bell. It woke God up, and suddenly he remembered all those promises he'd made. And then he looked down, and he saw the plight of the people, and he said, better do something. Now, you all know, I hope, that I was being pretty facetious there, right? 
we don't go that far. But there's a real possibility that we start humanizing God. And, and in humanizing him, we run the risk of limiting him. And that's, that's a problem. Okay? I'm sure there's, there's a really good big word for, for what I just tried to describe. I mean, when, when we think about our animals, we anthropomorphize, right? So we, we bring them up to, to our level. And so there's, there's got to be a word for bringing God down to, to our level. I just don't know what it is, but I think you get, get the point. We need to remember God hears every thought in our mind. He, he, God cannot forget anything. Um, God sees everything that's going on everywhere all the time. And He's got relationship with his people. He cares about his people. And we all know that, right? But sometimes it's good to have a reminder. God responds to people's prayer. But there's no immediate change. Moses is, is still off in Midian. And, and there's still baking bricks every day. They're still slaves. God doesn't send a telegram or some form of an acknowledgement that he heard the prayer. So what does God desire from his people at this point? He desires them to trust him and to be patient. Everything is going to happen according to God's good purpose, and it will happen in the fullness of his perfect timing. That's how it worked for the Hebrews back then. And that's how it still works for us today. It's another of those mysteries, how this prayer thing works. In answering our prayers, God somehow takes them and combines them with his eternal purposes. And, and he factors in his perfect timing. And not just for us, but for everyone, no matter how many degrees of separation are involved. And then somehow, voila. God works it all out. I can't explain it. I don't understand it. It's a mystery how God pulls us all together. The Hebrews cried out to God in their need, and he responded. And he does the same for you and me. Now, there are a number of kinds of prayer, right? There's, there's adoration. There's confession. There's... Prayers of thanksgiving, right? But we're talking here about the prayers of supplication. That's when we come to God with our needs. And that is huge. Think about that. We can come to God Almighty, the creator of the universe, simply because we have a need. And not only can we come to him, but he, he listens, he hears and he responds. That has to be one of the greatest expressions of love that there can be. Now, I may not always agree with how he responds. I may chafe at having to wait. I may grow impatient with his timing. But he will answer my prayer according to his good purpose and in his perfect timing. And he does the same for you.
Another thing that we can take from these few verses is that God remembered his covenant. For the Hebrews, that meant the promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Specifically in Genesis 15, verse 13, your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own. They will be enslaved and mistreated for 400 years. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. God never forgets a promise. He always fulfills his word. In remembering his covenant promise to bring the people out of slavery, God will send them Moses to lead them out of Egypt. This is the same God who sent Jesus to lead us out of slavery to sin. Again, he remembers his covenant. God promised a redeemer, didn't he? A perfect lamb to take the punishment for our sins. The deliverer who will lead us to the promised land of heaven. In this chapter, we have seen Yahweh give his people reasons for hope. A new hope, securely and firmly grounded in him. A hope not always seen, but sure, nevertheless. There is hope because Yahweh preserved baby Moses by his divine providence. And surely if he preserves the chosen deliverer, he will preserve the chosen people. There's hope because Yahweh overcomes the failures and flaws of his servants in order to bring about his good purpose. There's hope because Yahweh faithfully fulfills all his promises. In this chapter, we see reasons for the Israelites to have hope. But these same reasons apply to us. We have hope because God will preserve his chosen people. And that's us. That's everyone who claims Jesus as Savior and Lord. We have hope because God is capable of working for us and in us in spite of our failures and in spite of our shortcomings. We have hope because God keeps his promises and he has promised that we are safe in his hands. If you're still in bondage to sin, if you haven't said yes to Jesus, he is ready to set you free. We sang just a little bit ago. When the sun sets, when the sun sets you free, you are free indeed. All you have to do is ask. And if you have questions or you think you need some help with that, there are lots of folks here who would be thrilled to talk with, to you about that. We've been where you are. And if you're wandering in the wilderness, not sure what lesson you need to learn, not sure how God is preparing you, trust him, trust him, trust him, and be patient. Our hope is in Yahweh. Would you stand and let's pray. Oh, gracious God, how good it is to know hope and to know that our hope rests in you, Father. 
Thank you for your providence in saving Moses, in training him, in preparing him for your service. Thank you for the example that is to us. For in, it shows us that you can work through us. You can work through flawed failures. You can work even in folks like us. Lord, would you grant us the faith that we need to trust you, the patience we need to wait on you as you work out your good purposes in your perfect timing according to your plan for each of us. Lord, I pray that we would, each one of us, have opportunities to know you better. And, and not just to know about you, Lord, but to grow deeper in our relationship with you. Father, today as we celebrate mothers, we're reminded to thank you for the institution of family and how you, you use that flawed and imperfect and messy unit as a way to bring blessing to your people. Father, thank you. Thank you, for you are the faithful one. You are the one who keeps his covenant, the only one who is worthy of our praise, and we give it to you now in the name of Jesus. Amen.